Hey everyone, this is Jack, and this is our resurrected off the table uh, show that uh, once was like a real short news segment thing, but it's been expanded into news and discussion and topics and live streaming on the YouTube channel with the audio going up on the podcast channel, which is great. And I love the format, and it's such a great way to interact with people about board games, interact with friends, and everyone out there who wants to ask questions of us and participate in the conversation. That said, we're still getting used to live streaming and everything, and you can hear in the audio there's some, uh, I think it's all listenable and everything on this episode, but the the two hosts here, me and John, have a little bit different levels set when it comes to uh, the audio, and that's just part of the learning experience. So uh, we're working on it. We appreciate you working with us, and uh, so glad that you were here for the show. If you want to interact with us more, give feedback, that kind of stuff, then hop over to our Discord channel, and uh, you can always hit us up on Twitter or any of the other myriad ways of talking with us at the Cardboard Herald. Uh, look Looking forward to uh, doing the Zoom recording next week where I have the audio broken into two different tracks. And so even if it's not perfect on the stream, I can always do adjustments later separately for each audio channel. And that's pretty much it. Thank you so much for listening. And here is the show. Hello and welcome to the Cardboard Herald's Off the Table, a resurrected show that is all about gaming news and topical discussions and questions and just friends hanging out. I'm joined by co-host John Foster. How's it going, John? What's new in the world of board games? Uh, I don't think there's anything new in the world of board games in this room, but it's awfully hot up here, Juno. Yeah, well, I've been seeing on the Discord, you've been playing a lot of Marvel Champions, and you got some Marvel Champions in the back room there. You've been playing solo with other people. What, what's going on in the Champions table? Uh, getting it out, well, I just got the Drax pack in. The Drax, the Drax pack? Sounds awfully sharp there. Um, I gotta say it again. <laughs> Sounds <Drax> destructive. <laughs> um, but I, I, I'm current on all my heroes, so I, I had to break them out. Uh, I got the wife to play one round, but then I soloed the rest of the new ones. Uh, and let me just say... Zola Stomp's face. Changed my mind. <laughs> Were you doing Drax versus Zola? I'd be interested to see how you do the like canonical gymnastics in order to make that lineup happen. I mean, Marvel's done crazier things for sure, but uh, still, that those don't seem like paired villains to me. Or villain um, and anti-hero? I don't think about it that carefully because I'm not that familiar. I mean, I'm, I'm, a, I'm more of a DC guy when I was a kid. So if you ask me about Green Lantern, I know a lot more about that. But uh, robot facing chess guy, I don't know. He's just a cool new villain for me to fight. Okay. All right. All right. Well, our main topic today is purging games, and we're going to get that uh, get that out. We're going to start sharing our own knowledge, our history, our our experience, our recent experience of uh, purging games. But I do want to first kind of hit a couple news items that have come up recently. Some of them are more directly linked to you than others. Uh, the first one is I kind of wanted to get your read on this um, terraforming Mars Ares expedition uh, controversy. There's a lot of pitchforks. There's a lot of torches. There's a lot of people upset by apparently the, the new hotness, the terraforming Mars game, the mini condensed terraforming Mars game being picked up by Target with an exclusive retail edition. 
that is Stockton target as we speak before the, the backers actually get copies of the game. Now uh, you're a backer on this project, right? I am. Yeah. Yeah. How did you feel about this? Uh, I'm, I'm going to be honest, probably the unpopular non pitchfork opinion is that I, I don't care that much, <laughs> but, but I, I thought about that opinion. That was my initial knee jerk reaction. And I thought about that opinion because a lot of that comes from one, I don't have a target in my town. That helps. Yeah, uh, yeah. So there was that's no true. faster way to get it. But I think too, it came down to an internal assumption that this is this company, you know, maybe they had to um, you know, maybe they had to do the Kickstarter to help get funds to get that first print run. Maybe, you know, there was some reason why it occurred. Um, you know, it was all, all kind of a good faith assumption that, you know, Stronghold Games wasn't trying to be shady about it. And yeah. I thought about that, and maybe that's true, but but maybe that's also kind of the consumer in me wanting to conflate my love of board games for the <laughs> company itself. I mean, it's true. You like, right, you right, do right. that a lot with video game communities where you assume that the, the company is acting in your best interest just because you love the product, and that's not always true. So so maybe, maybe I need to hold them to a higher standard. What do you got on it? Yeah, I don't know. Like, to me, this is a lot of surprise Pikachu on both parties' parts here. Because to me, like, you know, the the original assumption of Kickstarter is that this game would not get made without the backers. And so above all else, you should be loyal to your backers. You want to make sure that they feel validated and, like, they're the priority. Without them, the game wasn't going to get made. And so they're the people who really should get the game first. And stronghold is no spring chicken when it comes to uh, 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 just the, the board game industry in general, and particularly Kickstarter. They've done Kickstarters in the past and they kind of knew, I, I got to imagine that they knew going into this, that people were going to be pissed off <laughs> that uh, backers want to get the first copies of this. And anytime retail outlets get copies of games before backers get them, uh, that that's just a recipe for disaster. The other thing about this is that, you know, I don't know. I think there's a lack of transparency on the part of uh, what's going on here for Stronghold. I mean, don't get me wrong. I want more games to reach more gamers. And I think that's going to be a good thing ultimately, regardless of what you do. And, and so I have no problem with the target exclusive as, as imagined, but I, I don't know. Like I, I don't think this had to be announced in the 11th hour where it was like, Oh, by the way, tomorrow, People are going to be able to go out and buy the game that you've been waiting patiently for for, for uh, months. You're still waiting for a tracking number. Exactly. So, you know, like uh, Jeffrey and Deborah, who are just like perusing Target for, you know, they, they needed to go there to get a duvet. And they're like, oh, Deborah, let's go over to the board game section. I'm sure they have Monopoly. And then they just happen to see this Terraforming Mars Ares Expedition game. They're like, oh. Look at this, Jeffrey. We can get this. They bring it home. They're playing it. They're enjoying it. Whereas you, the person who put your good faith and 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 your money towards making sure that this comes out, you had to wait a couple more months in order to get it. On the other hand, I think everyone who backs something on Kickstarter now in in the year of our Lord 2021, or I guess it was 2020 <laughs> when people were backing, have to know that like 
for the most part, this is a money-making scheme. I mean, this is a pre-order service and companies are going to do what is best for their bottom line. And Stronghold is doing exactly that. So I don't think this necessarily comes as a surprise. It's a disappointment for me, um, but it's not necessarily a surprise. And the end result is going to be more access to what looks to be a really cool game. And I'm personally not a backer, so it doesn't affect me that much. Um, it would affect me uh, greater, but maybe in a more positive light if we had that target in our neighborhood. You know what I mean? Right. Well, and, and let me just offer that maybe split the difference. Maybe let's assume some good faith here. I'd like to think that they're, they're maybe acting in their own best interest, but of course they don't want bad publicity. So I'm assuming that this is a kind of a gotcha moment for them where they thought they could get the backers their copy and get target handled and due to the differences in manufacturing or, or whatever that this caught them by surprise and, and hopefully they learn their lesson because it really doesn't generate a lot of goodwill even even from someone like me where i'm, I'm relatively different because i am experienced i'm i have way too many kickstarters under my belt to, to expect it to be anything other than a pre-order service for most established companies and besides but, for the kickstarter backers they needed to get you the exclusive sleeves for all of the the money tokens that are going to be delivered to you right you know they gotta well, make sure everyone is individually ziploc baggied i would say back it back it for that except but i think that the exclusive uh individual sleeving was for uh the big box only i think you missed out if you didn't back that oh okay 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 so that's like top tier backers that's who they're loyal to everyone else is just schlubs they they needed yeah. to please the people who are into the big box proper terraforming come, mars come wrapped you know in one bag i'm sure vacuum sealed like ready to be uh put into a pharaoh's tomb to be you know carried into the afterlife that's and that's <laughs> the plan there for anybody who doesn't know what we're what we're laughing about here if you haven't backed uh the terraforming mars big box there was a bit of a production oops where Every single one of something like um, 120 metal cubes, if you order the premium <laughs> metal cubes for the resources, every single one came in its only own Ziploc bag within another Ziploc bag within another Ziploc bag. It was so, Ziplocception. Yeah, I mean, it was it was one cube in a mini bag, that color of cubes, all the copper ones in a bigger bag, and all three of the colors in one bigger bag, so... It was three layers of bagging, and it took me probably an hour to, uh, to debag those. All right. I got two game announcements that I want to bounce off of you really quick first before we move on to our main topic. First one, we have a new Gale Force 9 Dune game, which Gale Force 9 was the company that resurrected, just like I was talking, we resurrected. This is a like Lazarusian podcast here we're talking about a lot of resurrection going on here uh the good news podcast uh, <laughs> uh gale force 9 brought back the original avalon hill dune game and uh for for better or worse it is that old school game it is definitely touched up around the edges to modernize it just a little but for the most part it maintains that old school flavor when it comes to the design and you know the expectations of what you're getting into we got this new one that is uh meant to be the same system overall but 
uh, better tuned for a two to four player experience and has visuals that are, are bringing you that sweet, 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 uh, like Timothy Chalamet uh, picture that that uh, Oscar Isaac visage. Um, so you can have the actors from the new upcoming Dune movie uh, on your tabletop. Uh, I don't know what what's your what's your vibe on this I know you're a big dune fan like me you like area control games but uh, does this have you tantalized or are you feeling kind of cool on this announcement uh, hot take if it doesn't have that card wielding a pug into battle it's not gonna be good <laughs> yeah I mean I, I don't even know how Josh Berlin can compete with uh, the man himself Picard uh, Patrick Stewart as Gurney Halleck. It's just going to be uh, disappointment abound if there's no pugs toted. Yeah, no, the big thing, I'm, 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 I'm really interested to see how it pans out. Uh, I do have kind of a glut of this type of game, the area control, you know, head-to-head -head conquest type game. But Dune is kind of a favorite old-time game of mine. And I got to say, if it can pull off the two to four player experience, it's a much better player count. Mm -hmm. But it's going to have to do that and still capture all of the sort of backstabbing, dynamic, deal-making, trading aspects that you're kind of expecting from this. It's got to feel like you're part of a faction with, you know, interconnected alliances. And I don't yeah. know how well it's going to do that with two to four players. I and mean, that's a challenge. That's what six players really does well, I think, so. For sure. Though I, I think there's so many iterations that have happened in like the last two years in particular when it comes to area control that have kind of conceptually approached how do we make like this bigger experience into like a two player game. I think actually a lot of solo play development has had designers thinking outside of the box in how to simulate larger scale experiences even at lower multiplayer player counts. Um, Eric yeah, Gall here. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Eric Gall uh, in uh, chat is mentioning they love Scale Force Nine Dune, and I I, I agree. I, I think the the GF Nine Dune is, is such a beautiful package. I love the cartoony uh, art aesthetic, and I think that's going to be a challenge for this new one because not since I'd say Battlestar Galactica. Uh, speaking of games that have come up a lot in discussion recently, uh, not since BSG have we had a licensed game with like stills or, or very, very closely tied to a movie um, uh, imagery in, in this level uh, that is going to be confronting the, the tastes of the modern gamer. I mean, I guess Dune uh, Imperium is at least artistically rendered to represent all the actors from the movie. You know, it's clearly, um, you know, uh, Cal Drogo <laughs> as uh, Which is cool, Duncan Idaho. He seems like a cool guy. So, he, you know, that, that's, that's kind of cool to see him in a board game. It's like, oh, look, it's Aquaman. Right, um, right. Yeah, exactly. You but, know but I got the impression that the new game, now correct me if I'm wrong, is it, is it more, is it real stills or is it more that artistic take on it just like the Imperium was? I, I think... I got the impression. 
yeah, I'm getting that impression that it's going to be the artistic take. And even looking at the board itself, uh, it looks like there is more of an abstraction of Dune. Like it doesn't even seem to have a lot of uh, stills or even characters on the cards themselves. Or if it's, you know, characters, they're like nondescript characters. Like here's your sort of cars or, you know, whatever Harkonnen, you know, legions that are coming in here and not specifically the actors. Um, but it does seem to be uh, almost like one of those old, um, I wish I knew the artist, but think of old like Steven Spielberg or even like Star Wars uh, painted posters where it is like very highly detailed to look like the actors. Oh, yeah. and I, I, I don't think I necessarily got that vibe from Dune Imperium, but this new Dune game, if it's not stills from the movie that are in it, it is much more richly detailed in order to evoke that movie tie-in they're like yo this movie is coming out and we want to capitalize on it um but if it's a good game it's a good game yeah but can i just make one point too as a uh as a nerd who will never be a famous actor uh much less a famous actor acting in a in a movie that then gets made into a board game that would be the the ultimate two-tier dream of of nerdy stardom is to both be in the Dune movie and then get to be featured in art for a Dune board game. <laughs> you know, you. you see, you see those the celebrities where they, you know, they frame their movie poster or their platinum selling album. I would definitely have my my board game box framed with my face on it. Now, would you be willing to be like the CGI model, you know, with all the green screen bobbles and bulbs all over yourself, you know, the Andy Circus uh, to the Gollum of Dune by being the pug? that is being carried into battle by Josh Berlin. Only if I get a special promo card. <laughs> okay, I'll I'll definitely make sure I'll, I'll put that in the 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 request order that I send over to GF9 be like you need to make sure this happens. Um other uh announcement this one's more exciting for me because I I'm the the leader fanboy of the two of us. Uh, but I was delighted to see that there's an announcement for Fort, the little uh, the little uh, deck building game, kind of like a consolidated, cute little deck building game uh, that uh, is a re-implementation of an older deck building game that Leader put out recently. It is a cats and dogs expansion, just a little card deck. Uh, but Leader Games is huge. People love them. And I want to know, John... If you were um, trying to get like a mascot for a fort that you were building with your friends as a kid, would it fall down to cats or dogs? Would you do mascot of like a, your local neighborhood cat or your local neighborhood dog? Unquestionably dogs. Okay. Yeah, it makes sense, though. Cats, I think, are rising in popularity with the Internet. I, I'd, I'd be interested to see what someone would say these days, uh, because, you know, like the Internet wasn't a thing when us old fogies were little kids building forts in the wilderness. So I wonder if cats, uh, their stock has risen. <laughs> oh, there we go. Uh, Steve Manser, Drew Struzan. So Steve Manser in chat just saved us by saying that Drew Struzan 
uh, is the artist in the mega movie posters. Thank you for uh, saving me there and making sure that we're giving credit where credit is due. Uh, if you don't know what I'm talking about, then look up Drew Struzan. These are like some of the most iconic movie posters of all time in which like every pockmark on Mark Hamill's face is lovingly rendered in the Return of the Jedi poster or something like that. Um, but we're here to discuss something, John. We're, we're here to discuss purging games. Uh, both you and I have uh, looked at our collections many times throughout our gaming lives, which has been decade spanning at this point and gone, man, we need to cut some games. Um, and so we thought we'd make that kind of the main discussion point for uh, this episode before we get into some audience questions. If people want to post anything in chat, they're welcome to. Uh, I know over on our Discord, we got a question specifically about uh, purging games. Uh, but uh, John, you know, like, why is this an interesting discussion topic to you? Like, you know, why is it worthwhile to talk about? Um, you know, I think it's one of those things that when you first start in board gaming as more than just a, Hey, I, I happen to own this one cards against humanity game or something for when friends come <laughs> over. When you first start actually getting real hobby tabletop games, uh, you know, and you're up to like 10 or 12 or so, you know, an average person might look at that and say, look, my game shelf, like I have a little shelf for some games and that's great. But once you've reached that point, you start becoming a, a true hobby gamer and you're, you're looking at board game, uh, journalism, you're seeing what's coming out, you're seeing what's new on Kickstarter, it starts to become real easy to get the new hotness, get that fear of missing out, get that, you know, I, well, there's a hole in my collection. What about this player count? What about this type of game that I don't have something for? And there's also that very much that um, excitement that you get when you play a new game for the first time and it does something slightly different than those other games did. Right, right, and right. So it's really easy to get collection bloat where you you just pile up and it's not like uh it's not like you know getting a book on your kindle or you know get listen to a new song on spotify these things take up shelf space and yeah, they the, are permanent the way i think about it is that when i first started collecting games i felt like i had to own every game that was fun like i, yep. I think that was the biggest problem is that like every game that i enjoyed i wanted to have it and i think part of it is because like you're so myopic when you start you don't have an awareness of how truly large the world of great games are because you're so used to playing like okay maybe i played magic or Yu-Gi-Oh or pokemon or whatever and then growing up you might have played risk or maybe you played Catan or carcassonne with some people and then you start going to a game night and you go like oh my god this like completely changes everything this is so different than all the other games that are out there and you feel like surely there can't be more than 10 amazing games. And so you buy all 10 of those amazing games and then you find out that there's 50 amazing games and you buy all 50 of those amazing games. And lo and behold, it, there's thousands of amazing games out there. And if you want to buy them all, it's gonna be a problem, whether it's on your budget or on your shelf space. Right, or honestly uh, on the squishier side of things even on just your your own mental well-being too. oh yeah of course totally totally it gets all it gets to a point where it becomes a very marie Kondo situation where you start <laughs> look at that, that shelf of shame yeah. you start looking at your games and going man i feel kind of bad that i own these things that just aren't getting played and mm -hmm. i think you described it really well by saying you know it's it comes down to you don't realize 
that you play a good game, you don't have to own it. But every time you do play a good game, if you enjoyed it, you can see yourself, you can envision yourself playing it again. Right. It, somehow you don't ever sit down and you don't ever do the calculus that re is required to figure out, well, my free time actually doesn't add up to a collection of 200 board games. So maybe I shouldn't own that many, you know, maybe I only have room in my life for 20, 50, 70, whatever the magic number is for someone. Okay. So you build up, you build, 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 you, you know, take it all in, you put it on your shelves, you know, so what's the purpose of getting rid of the games? Like, you know, what for you, when you've made several purges at this point of games in your collection, what was the intent making room for more relaxing the mental state, making some cash? Like, you know, was there any one true motivation that superseded the others? I think the overarching reason for me was, was the mental state. To be honest, it weighed heavily on me. And, and to me, my hobby is reflective of where my, I'm at in life to a certain point. Mm -hmm. there, was, there was a time in my life where I was a young adult and I was playing games like Magic. And I, and I sunk a lot of my disposable income into pursuing those hobbies. And a lot of my time into pursuing those hobbies. Um, and it was easy to do because my time was my own and I could do anything I wanted with it. And then I moved on to being kind of more, but I didn't have a ton of money. So it was like, I could only have one of those things. You know, I could, I could play magic and I didn't really explore other games, but then we, we, I get up to Alaska. I meet some friends, some cool people. I get a decent job and I've got a little more disposable income. And all of a sudden the whole world of hobby gaming opens up even wider. And this is maybe 10, 11 years ago now. And for a good four or five years, it felt like sky's the limit. Right. Mm -hmm. And yeah. then about five years ago, I meet my wife. I end up, you know, with a family and my life has changed again. And I'm looking at this shelf of things that I collected in that time period where I had extra income. I had more than enough time to seek out new players, new circles of friends. You know, if I, if I had a group of friends who didn't like a certain game, I could get it played somewhere else. Right. All the time in the world, right? And now I have to look at my time and I have to say, what can I do to optimize the fun I'm having with the amount of time I have? And when I look at my shelf and I see games that I just know are never going to make that cut, it, it makes me, it brings me down to see things that I love that they're just never going to get played. Yeah. It's like a, a specter that looms over you and is like a reminder of your life changing in a lot of ways. Or in my case, you know, like I, I'm a super sentimental person and uh, you know, like I like my toys. I like my games. They're on my shelf and I want to get them played. And this is such a weird a sunken cost fallacy thing but i think if i have a game on my shelf it needs to get played it deserves to get played and so even though i'm like oh i really want to play game x you know like uh right now i'm I, I was thinking the other night about like oh i really want to get to the next chapter in adventure tactics I, that's a actual example but then i was like oh but it's been so long since i've played duelist or island i should probably play that and there was almost like no joy that came out of the fact that I was going to play Duelist War Island, which is a good game and still on my shelf, which I really want to play. But there's a cost to all of these games being on my shelf, kind of fighting for my attention. And, you know, that that lo love that just oozes for gaming is being spread thin over all of these. Whereas if I have more of the games that I truly love that I'm going to get to the table, I can dive into them deeper and get those rich experiences that I really want. I like yeah. variety, but I also don't like the, the baggage that necessarily comes with the desire to play all of the games on the shelf. 
Right. And you know, what's an interesting thing is, is you think about that sunk cost idea. And if you imagine going to the movies with a group of three to four people, you know, it's going to run you 40, 50 bucks, you know, and uh, maybe, maybe more if you're buying snacks, right? So, yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, and if we're going to the movies, I'm buying snacks. So, you know, you think that that's at least one board game's worth of entertainment. And that's a one night, maybe two, two and a half hour experience for four people. Well, I, I could do that with a single board game, but then that board game sits on my shelf and it could, it could be a better value. I could get that game played more than once, right? <laughs> yep. So that, that sounds like I'm selling board games as this great cost uh, effective way to entertain people, but also we don't mourn the fact that I'm not going to ever watch that movie again after I've watched it. I don't watch it sit and collect dust on my shelf. So if there's not room to get it played, it's not adding value by possessing it. Totally. You know, if, you, if you can play something once and say, well, that was a neat game, but do I need to own it? You might be in a better place. And that's where purging comes into it, where I look at those games. And like you said, I look at the games that I'm playing and I ask myself, am I just checking a box to say I've gotten it played at least once this year? And did mm-hmm. I really want to play that? Or was I really more interested in playing something else? Now, do you kind of like future proof yourself? I mean, we're talking about these squishy things, which are great, you know, actual things that we have to contend with. But uh, there's a real practical end of it for me, um, you know, being a, a board game reviewer, I get a lot of board games sent to me for review. And uh, at a certain point, even games that I really enjoy, I have to get rid of in order to make room for the games that I love most. I, I have a unique perspective on this, I guess, compared to many gamers, though there, there are certainly are a lot of gamers out there who probably get just as many, if not more games than me and don't review games. But uh, I, I try to account for not just the games that I have on my shelf right now, but I need to make sure that I'm constantly ejecting games in order to be able to contend with the things that are coming down the road. I want to feel good about a new game coming into my house instead of being like, oh, this is a problem. I think I play it more on like a debt system where I'm always <laughs> catching up to the purge rather than purging ahead of time. And that, that comes down to the question, you know, when do you initiate a purge, right? Like mm-hmm. what's, what's the triggering moment. And I think, I think rolling back to the squishy thing for a moment, I think when, if you're having any of those feelings where, you know, you, you ever find yourself feeling bad about something that hasn't gotten played, that's definitely a time to do it. Other indicators might be things like a little bit more hard and quantitative. Like if you look at your shelf, has a game gotten played within the last year or six months or two years, whatever your metric is that, that works for your cycle of games. And um, I think that that kind of comes down to what best fits your system. And for me, my system isn't based on when I play the games. I have a set number and it's a one in one out, but I let myself, I kind of have a little wiggle room with that. Like I let, if I get a new <laughs> You got to have the wiggle there, room. I mean, it, it would be a nightmare if you were too hardcore about it. It would be. I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna instantly go out and purge a game as soon as I buy a new game. But when I'm at like four or five over, then it's time to prune a few. Mm-hmm. And you know, and, and every time, and I'll be honest, knowing that that's coming, I prepare myself whenever I'm considering a game. It puts me in a better mindset as a consumer, maybe not to be as wasteful about how I purchase my games. And it's really slowed down how much I buy because I look at it and go, I know that in you know, say six months, I'll be five over my limit or so and it'll be time to purge and what's going to get sacrificed and and if i buy this new game is the new game getting sacrificed well you know obviously not right so then what is it replacing 
I don't know. I, there's been some new games, including games that I bought that have gotten to my table. And I've been like, this is not what I really wanted to sign up for. So it well, might get the purge in that's some the instances. Hope, though, when I'm buying yeah. something new, is, is I'm hoping that it will be an improvement on the collection, right? Totally. The idea is that it's, the collection is moving forward in terms of I'm always getting the best experience possible. So hopefully it's getting better. You're right, though. I've purged a few games where I'm like, I think I regret buying that. Because mm-hmm. I know it's going to go to the purge pile real quickly. Hope someone else loves it. Right, right. Well, I, I know that there there's all kinds of metrics that you can use. You mentioned uh, probably some of the best and most solid ones earlier, having a hard limit or uh, looking to see, have I played this game within the last year? Um, you could also just use a, a very visceral uh, element here by just looking at your shelf and seeing which of them have literally collected dust that that happens to me sometimes i'm like oh my cyclades copy back here it uh i had to go in and dust that sucker and at that point it's like well you know as as attached to the game that i am maybe that that's a good sign that i should take some action did you purge cyclades not not yet that that's on the the pending purge list here right now um a lot of games in that vein have been purged um commit got the the chop from me uh shortly before oddly enough the new one was announced and that actually put a kind of wrench in the the uh resale of the the original edition because i think people were like "Eh, commit needs a new edition uh they weren't hot for the first funny about that is i purged bsg and it sold on eBay just two days before uh, or after Atlantica, Battlestar Atlantica came out. Yeah, an yeah. Thing, which is crazy because there's obviously some people out there. It sold pretty well. And I'm just going to say that there's obviously some people who were like, if it doesn't have Edward James almost on it, I don't want it. Yeah. Speaking of pockmarks, really you got the OG. Yeah, you got to have the EJO. I mean, who else is going to think about the kids? Plus, I mean, BSG is one of those those franchises that people are nuts for not only was it an iconic game that completely like shaped a a genre i know it didn't invent the hidden trader mechanic but it certainly kind of introduced it to a a a wider audience and and popularized it maybe yeah yeah popularized it or helped yeah assisted assisted it it was there kind of saying this is how this should be from now on you know like uh white kids in britain didn't invent uh, rock and roll, but they did kind of shape it into this new thing that was like pop rock for the next 40 years, so to speak. But, um, you know, BSG is like, people are fanatical about the series as is. So if you have a good game and something that people know now will never get a new edition in the way that it was, then they're probably going to go crazy for it. Buy up all the copies. Plus the expansions for that game, I think were were super hard to find and people were probably kind of concerned that that wouldn't be introduced into that new FFG thing. But as far as purging, okay, so we got the, the when are we going to purge? You know, the, the checking the dust, checking the list, those kind of things. We got some of the reasons to purge. Um, so, you know, like let's talk about methodology. Like for me, uh, I would say at this point on an every other month basis, uh, I'm looking at my shelf and going like, 
what could get trimmed here. My shelves are getting a little too full. The 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 vacant slots that I made in my uh, most recent purge have now been filled up and I need to start thinking about this again. Um, I don't necessarily dump all my games every other month, but I would say uh, at least every six months, I'm starting to look at like, let, let's, let's make this happen. Let, let's cut some games here. And I try to think about the games that I haven't played in the longest. Uh, and I try to imagine myself getting them to the table again. And like, what does that do for me? You know, do, does that actually inspire something in me? Uh, do I imagine that I'm actually going to get it onto the table again? Or am I holding on to it because I love the memories of playing those games? Imperial Assault is a great example of that for me, that I have such good memories of playing that campaign but the reality of playing it again, I'm kind of holding on to the idea that I might do the the fully cooperative stuff now, but I, I don't know. That's a huge chunk of space on my shelf. Um, you know, I think that's that's an interesting thing to bring up is what what is your system for looking at it? And I'd like to think that it, your system is that bench that I see sitting next to your shelves. That once the pile gets about four or five deep on that, then yeah, it starts yeah. to be like, it's time for a purge, right? Yeah, exactly. Um, but if you, I think you and I have a similar method in terms of what we do is that is that we purge and we usually shuffle them off to another room of the house. And once we get enough, we'll usually deal with them at that point because dealing with them is its own question. But um, for me, when it comes to actually, what do I pick to do the chopping block? Um, I have, well, I have a spreadsheet. I'm kind of a spreadsheet nerd, um, which I do a lot for my job. So of course I built the spreadsheet for my board games. Um, I have a spreadsheet of my game inventory of what I own. And I honestly, when I, when I look at that and I realize, okay, I'm about four or five games over, I go through just kind of mentally and I think about categories of games. Like what types of games do I own and what net niches do they fill? What, what, what are we engaging in? And it's not just these, these really pedantic board game types. Like we were talking about campaigns, what defines a campaign? I don't think mm -hmm. about it in terms of very pedantic terminology. I think about it as what activity are we engaging in? Sure. Is it is it social deduction type bluffing? Are we engaging with the other players? Is it direct conflict? You know, those kinds of things. Is it very economic and very mathy? And I think about those broad sections and each one might have 10, 15, 20 games in it uh, in my collection. And I think to myself, well, okay, if I go down that roster of 10 or 15 games, what are like the top five? Okay, those are safe. And then what are the middle five? Okay, those are safe. And then what are the bottom five? You know, those, maybe one or two or three of those could go. Because mm -hmm. you know, if I've got that many in a category, what are the odds I'm going to cycle all the way to the bottom of that list? Right. And, and that some entry at the top is going to be. So a great example is I have a glut of area control. I mentioned if I were to buy Dune, I'd have to purge something. And I'm gonna, I could list off the top of my head. I give you five games: uh, Forbidden Stars, Game of Thrones, uh, Warrior Knights, Cry Havoc, and Command. All very heavy conflict, very different. And I would argue, you know, I could sit here and say, well. Yeah, but Game of Thrones does something that Comet doesn't do, and Comet does something that uh, Forbidden Stars doesn't do, and you know what they all do? Sit on my shelf and get dust. Right. So Forbidden I, Stars got the axe for that reason. I, I think the exact comparison that I try to do when I have like games is I try to go like, if I were playing this game, yes, I might enjoy it. Like a lot of games, I just enjoy playing, but is there a different game that I would 
almost always be rather playing. Uh, and one that has been kind of like a mainstay in my house that I haven't been able to get rid of yet has been Lords of Waterdeep is a great example. A lot of worker placements have come and go. And I have other worker placements on my shelf, including like Dune Imperium, which I think does something very different, though in the same vein as Lords of Waterdeep. I have a heavier worker placement like Caverna on my shelf. Um, you know, lots of worker placement games. Uh, Viticulture is another example. But when something is a little a little close uh, in the zone, so to speak, of another game, I, I try to do that that simple check for myself. If I was playing this, yes, I'd have a good time. It's not a question of whether or not this is a bad game, but realistically, would I rather be playing this other game? And Lords of Waterdeep has won out so many times. Like if we had like a tier list or, you know, like one of those, uh, you know, like um, tournament brackets in order to see what all these games are going up against, which would be fun. Like maybe we should do that, John, uh, <laughs> a tournament bracket for the purge. Um, but uh, Lords of Waterdeep has been like OP every time it's gone up against something. It is top tier, S tier in its uh, contention with everything else. Well, um, go that's ahead. That's the thing to think about. Well, when you think about categories too, I try not to limit myself too too deeply to just the category. It's also what is the roughly what is the player size, the player count. You know, do I have games? Obviously, I play games with my wife. I know you do too. So there's two player is, is a heavy factor in that. You want right. to have a good selection of two player games in different genres. Solo games, you're going to want to have, you know, if you've got a limited selection, so if you want a variety, you don't want all the same thing. But right. also, you know, two to four players is a really sweet player count compared to, say, three to six. So the three to sixes tend to get the action much quicker. But I still want to keep maybe one or two around in the collection as a whole for bigger groups of rare occasions. But then also, what is the what is the weight? You know, if I only have 30 minutes to, to an hour, you know, Lords of Waterdeep is a great example of a very mid-weight, easy to get to the table, so easy to get to the table. Am I always going to want to play Caverna? No. But while they're both worker placement, I don't feel like they overlap a lot into what they do for me. On the other hand, if I owned Agricola and Caverna, well, that's a huge overlap. One of those is probably going to beat the other one every time. And I, I think your your uh, comparison or your, your way of describing it is like, would I rather play something else? It, it ima I imagine it like just spin the wheel and it mm -hmm. goes around and around and it's going to pick a random game. And you ask yourself if it landed on a given game and I would be like, oh, you know, that's OK, but I'd rather it have gone one space over, you know, oh, just one more to the left. We could be playing Caverna instead of Agricola. Right. Well, well you actually one. you actually texted me about this recently. I was at Costco. I remember being like, oh, I could focus on groceries or instead I could focus about board games. You know, John and I talk about it. Uh, you texted me uh, after having played Between Two Castles, Mad King Ludwig for the first time. I brought it over to your house. We played it. We had a great time. You said, oh, yeah, that was a good game. Um, and then you asked me. The thing is, is I was thinking about you have both suburbia and between two castles and i feel like those would fit too much of the same itch what what do you think like do you feel like your collection really justifies both and for me it does and i think that's that's the hardest thing about this topic but also the best thing about this topic is it's so individual like there there is no clean answer there's no the right amount of games for any one person i i think as squishy and subjective as it is 
the the answer is like you should get rid of games that don't provide you some sort of joy and it doesn't even have to be the the super pragmatic i'm going to get it played joy if the sentimental uh, attachment that you have to a board game like hero quest is just right above me that's a game that I don't think that I'd ever purge. You know, that that's a game that I want to have forever, even if I don't, you know, get it to the table and likely will not get to it in years. You know, I might play it with my kid when he's, you know, 10 years old or something, but I still want to have it because of like the, the sentimental attachment that I have, what it represents to me. Uh, whereas otherwise I, I'm very practical and pragmatic when it comes to getting rid of games and, you know, not paying too much attention to sentimentality. So, you know, like weigh everything and, and think about like, does this provide you sufficient joy that the costs of ownership, the space, the time, the mental attention, the anxiety, all that kind of stuff uh, doesn't outweigh the benefits. Um, and if it does outweigh the benefits, that's when you get rid of it, right? Yeah, well, and I have one personal thought on that is that, um, you know, you chose to have a family and started from scratch. And my own experience was a little more abrupt being a stepfather um, <laughs> and just kind of diving right into it. Honestly, it was a very it was a much more abrupt transition for me. And you bypassed that, the diaper stage. It was uh, well, in some I'm, ways I'm, the I'm, smartest decision. you. <laughs> I'm not going to say that part of it was a, was a bad decision. At all. <laughs> But, but what was interesting to me about it is that there was no conscious decision and then and then this act of sort of growing and changing I had my life changing uh, with this decision. It was sort of a, okay, well, you know, if I'm going to do this, all of a sudden I go from being a single man to being a man with a, a full family. And there wasn't, there wasn't a time where I was also just sort of just married and a young couple either. So it was an abrupt transition for me. And what that meant is, you know, I had a lot of things about my free time and my life that changed. And I don't regret any of that. It was a great decision. I love my wife and I love my kid. And uh, what I give up in, in that single guy free time is well worth the sacrifice. But when I look at the board games on the shelf, like some really heavy hitters that, you know, BSG was one that we, we really only got it played because we were all about five to 10 years younger, had nothing better to do than spend four hours playing a board game on a Friday night. You know, that was much easier to do five to 10 years ago. And I don't regret the decision to move on with my life, but I also don't need that box sitting on the shelf saying, oh, do you remember when you used to be able to do this? You know? Right, right, so, right. To me, it's better to pass that game on to someone who's going to cherish it and be able to utilize it and just savor the memory of the times I did play it rather than keep the object and have the object sort of haunt me like a ghost of, you know, weeknights past. <laughs> <laughs> So to get to Dickensian for us here. Right. I, I, I know how much we both love our like Victorian novellas. Okay, so we've gotten into like what you're getting rid of, the why and all this kind of stuff. Before we get into some audience questions here, uh, because we, we've gotten a couple questions at this point, and I appreciate everyone hopping into chat. Um, it, how do you do this? Like, uh, the, this is something that I think is unique for us as Alaskans, in particular Juneau Alaskans, uh, because for those of you who don't know, Juneau, even though it's the capital of Alaska, is inaccessible by roadways. You're only getting out of here by boat or you're getting out of here by plane or a very intrepid hike. Um, there is a pretty sizable for the capita board game community here, but it's not exactly easy to you know, offload a lot of your stuff. 
then again, there's also some universals that we have to contend with. I mean, a flat rate shipping box is the same, whether it's going from Sacramento, California to San Diego, as it is from Juneau, Alaska to New York City. So, you know, some of it translates, some of it might be unique, but like, what's your experience when you've done your recent purges? Well, what we're talking about here is how we actually get rid of these games. And first thing I do, of course, you know, I do look at eBay to see, okay, am I holding out of some crazy valuable collector's item? You know, eBay. That, now that's a name I haven't heard in a long time. <laughs> well, I mean, as, as, as generous as I'd like to be with my games, I do want to find a new home when it's selling for ridiculous prices because it's a collector's item. It's hard not to say, you know what, this could pay for a few more board games down the road and also make up for some of the other regrettable decisions I've made. So I kind of have to sell it in good conscience just for that reason. So where it's practical, I do look at eBay where, you know, especially if it's a box that fits in a flat rate shipper and usually those nice like 11 by 11 or so like standard board game boxes ship nicely for like 15 bucks. So mm -hmm. I'll sell those, but it's got to be worth it. I mean, and if the game isn't selling for, you know, a ridiculous sum, usually I'll, I'll either bundle them and try and sell them on a local Facebook group to say, hey, I've got 20 games for, you know, 100 bucks or best offer or whatever and see if something picks up. Um, I know you had a lot of success, you know, offloading it to a local game club that way, um, mm -hmm. a high school game club, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and the last alternative is, you know, we have our local convention and oftentimes what I do is I just donate in large quantities for the used game table where they sell it for honestly for pennies on the dollar. You know, you could buy a game that might have cost me 50 bucks. You can buy it for five, but right. it supports the convention. So and the convention's a, a, a worthwhile endeavor and it still has the benefit of getting into the hands of gamers rather than say uh, my greatest fear and tell me if I'm wrong here. <laughs> my greatest fear is I'd put it in a yard sale and someone's grandfather would come along and be like, well, little Timmy would love this game. And little Timmy's like six and likes monopoly. And this is like a $50 four hour board game. And I'm just like, okay, let it go. Yeah. I actually have a story about this that isn't related to board games though, uh, is exactly what you're talking about. Recently we sold our old table, which we've had for years. My wife and I got it when we were teenagers, uh, before we were even married. And, uh, this was intended to play board games. Like we bought it with the idea of like, we want a big, nice board game table. And, uh, it was the, the biggest sum of money that I'd ever spent, uh, at that time, you know, like it was like $1,200 for this beautiful table. It wasn't like a gaming table or anything. It was just a nice dining table, way too big for our apartment. Um, and we even brought it to us when we moved to Juneau, Alaska from the up North. Uh, and that was an endeavor in and of itself. But finally we are like, this just doesn't really work for our lives anymore. We got to let go of this table. We've kind of shaped our house around like different things. Um, and we ended up selling it uh, online and someone came over to look at it and this beautiful cherry wood table with like some wearing on it for sure. Like there's some wearing um, it, it. The person was like telling her husband, well, we could always paint it. And my wife was like, put the blinders on. Don't, don't worry about it like don't fret the fact that they're trying to paint this gorgeous table um and, and just you know slap a coat of paint on this thing instead of refinishing it or leaving the kind of antiquing as it was because it wasn't like effed up or anything no, it no, was no. just it was worn off scuffing. i know the table 
exactly no call to paint that and you know for a lot of people they they think that that uh antiquing is actually a big part of the character of uh older furniture and everything and just like oh uh she she was on the verge of tears after uh uh the the people left uh being like oh my god i mean i'm glad the table's out of our life but did you hear what they said? Uh, she she was frankly offended. It just makes me think of that 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 nerd at the at the store who hears like the mom talking about something or, or whatever, and well, this would be great for so and so, and you know, he's really into this, and and just is like horrified. It's like I can't sell this to you, ma'am. <laughs> yep, yep, yep. Okay, uh, so I, I think as far as getting rid of games, you know, everything falls into three categories, three basic categories. I think like if you actually have the games, which what you mentioned earlier was really important. You know, the the first part of being better at, you know, conservation is not recycling. Uh, it's not reusing, it's the reducing. You know, first and foremost, do you need to put things into your collection? But if you do have them in your collection, um, you know, and you need to get rid of them, then it's going to fall into either you give it away, you trade it, or you're going to sell it. You already covered eBay. Um, if you're looking for methods of getting rid of games, I mean, um, there's subreddits that are dedicated to selling games. I like using that uh, as a method because, you know, you can kind of develop uh, like internal cred from our board game exchange. And that way you become a verified seller or verified purchaser. And people kind of have this internal community. There's more free discussion to be had about it. Um, if something is messed up, I feel like circumventing the the formal route of like uh, uh, eBay or something is uh, it allows you to kind of have a conversation with someone about things. Uh, so I like Board Game Exchange. Board Game Geek has a lot of seller features, and that's fantastic. Um, and you mentioned Facebook earlier, or other social media sites. Um, but I think you and I, for ages, time immemorial, have practiced giving games like to our friends, to one another, like almost always for years at this point, whenever we go to get rid of games, we just send each other a list of like, hey, do you want any of these? Before I get rid of them, do you want these? Uh, just to make sure that, you know, someone else is going to appreciate these games because, you know, like one... I don't want them to end up in the trash because of that conservation thing. You know, that's a nightmare. The the amount of carbon footprint that went into making this thing, but also it's a game, a game that I loved enough to have in my collection at one point. I don't want that to go to recycling if I can avoid it. So I'd rather go to my friends who, you know, whether they can afford games or not, you know, whether it's an issue of, you know, they, they just haven't had a chance to play the game or they didn't have the game because I had the game and they were like, well, I don't need to add it to my collection, but they would be sad if they miss the opportunity to pick it up for free. So, you know, I, I'm not saying you have to be benevolent with your collection, but first see if anyone in your game group or, or your library or your local uh, convention, uh, it, you know, a school uh, could use any of these games. A lot of teachers run board game clubs at this point, uh, Dungeons and Dragons clubs, like gladly take all of your old D&D books if you wanted to get rid of them. And then trading, you know, like there's math trades that happen online, which is a really cool system. Like, I don't those know. Those are John, a lot of fun. Yeah. Yeah. I get to do a live one at uh, Shucks 2018. And those are just a lot of fun. It's just like, it's that classic, 
like, well, I'm going to start with a paper clip and I'm going to end up with a house kind of thing. Yeah, exactly. You may never actually get a house, but but it's cool to see that like I've got this completely unrelated fluff game that to me I don't want, and I end up with something I really you know actually desired and wasn't you know able to find. Yeah, I always think of Zelda Link's Awakening whenever I'm doing a math trade because it's just like everyone is getting what they're asking for. And ultimately, it really helps me out because I got the game I wanted here. Um, it, you have to kind of have trust in the system like that. That was the biggest hurdle for me was like, does this work? I just like tell an algorithm that I want X, Y and Z game and it just kind of matches things up. But yeah, people do it all the time. Board Game Geek is probably the biggest facilitator of this, but, um, you know, like internally within all kinds of forums, um, shut up and sit downs forums. Uh, they do that. I wouldn't be surprised if here in Juno, Platypus Con might make like a, a big trade event or table, uh, either officially or unofficially a feature in the future. Yeah, future and that, future. That that's hard to say. A feature, future, future, feature. You have to get to that critical mass though of of, of people interested in training, so that it kind of greases the wheels of like that paperclip has to go to the guy who wants the shell, who wants you know to trade it for the tire swing who gets the house or something so totally well uh before jump to house from there <laughs> totally well before we uh let everyone uh go here before we let each other go uh because inevitably we're going to want to have dinner here in alaska i don't know where everyone else is in the world i was talking to someone who was in the united arab emirates on my most recent live stream where i was doing like some solo stuff that blew my mind uh but here in alaska uh it's uh it's creeping up on six o'clock here pretty soon but um, let's answer some questions. If anyone has uh, any uh, audience questions here about getting rid of games or otherwise, look, Mike Travis just joined. I know. That, he doesn't have a great. question. He has a statement about Ball John. And yeah, when he last saw me, I had a lot more hair. And uh, I have long since given up the pretense of, of having any hair from about this part of my head up. So. <laughs> Uh, yeah, shout out to Mike Travis, uh, one of our gaming buddies who uh, moved down south to the lower 48, as we call the rest of the continental or contiguous U.S. Okay, so uh, we had a question here earlier. Uh, Don Clemson, uh, who's in chat right now, um, but uh, also asked this on Discord, I was asking, have you ever regretted getting rid of a game after a purge? And it just so happened that that exact same question came up uh, by um, Musar523. So you ever had any regrets? You ever gotten rid of something and kind of went, eh, maybe I made a horrible mistake there. I'll try not to be too long-winded, but this is my second personal experience I wanted to share. I was really looking forward to sharing is that uh, in 2017, I had an apartment fire. I was uninsured at the time. I just, uh, the year before, I moved in with my wife. And we stood a very good chance of losing everything. And we lost actually about three full rooms in that house worth of stuff. We walked away with mostly the kitchen, the living room, couch, and TV. And then, oddly enough, the board game room that we had <laughs> at the time. And we were, we were fortunate enough to have, we somehow stumbled into this ridiculously large apartment for a somewhat reasonable price. So we had a separate room for board games and my entire board game collection that I brought into this relationship was in that room. And uh, our bedrooms went up, our the spare room went up and everything in there was lost. And the fire crept down the hall. And the only reason that the fire department was able to put it out before the board game room went up is because I had my door closed. So a little, little uh, public service announcement there. 
close your doors in your house when you're not in it because it actually does act as a fire break and helps save rooms of your house from destruction should it catch on fire when you're not there. But that experience, I did lose a few games that were on the floor at the time because the, the spray from the fire hoses did soak the floors in other rooms and it, it got into the carpet in the other room. Um, but after cleaning them all up and getting all the smoke damage and stuff off everything, 99.9% .9 of the collection was okay. But losing those 10 games or so that were on the ground and losing all that other stuff and a lot of actual personal things were in the spare room um, very, make, very much makes it easy to say, you know what? It's just stuff. Yeah. Like, oh, when the stuff has been taken from you forcibly, it kind of forces you to reconcile it. And either it's traumatic and you hang under your stuff tighter, or in my case, you look at it and go, huh, yeah, I guess it really is just stuff, huh? I mean, as long as you've got the essentials, which we did, we had friends and family we could stay with. We, we recovered financially after a, a, another year or so um, and kind of put things back together. So, like, you know, as far as the board games go, I was lucky to keep them, but now letting them go, it's, it's hard to really regret that stuff. So a little longer of an answer, but I, I kind of thought that was a, a really relevant experience I had for that. Okay. Well, I, I have a actual answer, John, you know, oh, okay. I don't need to go all you don't need to light on everyone. On fire to, to... <laughs> that's what I do to purge. Uh, I just light the whole house on fire. <laughs> no, I, I, I actually think that's really great. I mean, it's important to have perspective. And like you said, you know, having a, a significant event like that makes you kind of reconcile you know, like, what are the priorities that I have in my life? And what am I okay with letting go of, you know, like, sometimes people think so much about the possessions that they have, uh, that, that kind of like, dominates their mental space, that could be occupied by, you know, much more meaningful things uh, to get all high school edgelord on you, you know, it's like they say in Fight Club, the things you own end up owning you. Um, but, uh, yeah, Mage Knight. Um, I've owned Mage Knight now three times. Uh, <laughs> I, I got it. Uh, I think I got it as like a Christmas present or something. Um, and then I played it and this was early on in my gaming. And I was like, uh, uh, this, is, this, is, early. this is too much. Uh, and I got rid of it. And then I was like, maybe I just wasn't as experienced of a gamer maybe it really is the best game in the world. And then I got it again. And I, I, I paid US dollars in order to get that sucker again. And then I was like, um, yeah, I, I just, I, I played tons of heavy games at this point. I love a ton of heavy games. I just don't really want to invest the time into this. I realize why people like it. Don't want to invest the time in it. Got rid of it again. And now I ended up inheriting a copy, which I've been playing a lot of solo games in particular the last two years. And I know this is like the mwah, cream of the crop when it comes to solo games for a lot of people. A lot of people think of this as like the bar for solo solitaire gaming. And there's part of me that's like, oh, should I give it another try? Has my perspective changed again? And uh, I haven't gotten rid of it yet, uh, but it is in the like holding pile, the danger, the, zone. The danger zone, the vicinity of destruction. In my um, spreadsheet, they're the ones I highlight orange. Yeah, exactly. The orange zone, like, they're not red, they're not purges, but they're, they're edging there. They're on deck, um, <laughs> but I, I still want to try it again. But I, I have a feeling that uh, even if I get it to the table before um, the the right way of purging it get, comes along, it's going to uh, just make a, a a big wet 
bleh. Uh, and I'm going to get rid of it again, but maybe not. Maybe I'll love it. Maybe I love it. I Vlada Shavadal is uh, Vlada Shavadal makes some amazing games and also some games that I just have never been really that into. Uh, don't at me, Dungeon Lords fans. Uh, so uh, one more question uh, I got from Davy Munez on Twitter, who uh, asked uh, when purging a game or deciding whether or not to keep uh one game from among two do you weight heavier uh a game that has more flexibility or more intrinsic joy to you like essentially is it a better game for your collection or is it a better game for you and if you had to get rid of one what are you going to get rid of Ooh, heavy hitting there because that actually bites deep for me i am a different kind of gamer than many of the people in my circle. I love almost every game I've played. I, I find something to love about it. But I also do lean towards some of those heavy-hitting games and some of those really high conflict just because of what I grew up on between Magic and Risk and that sort of background. So when I look at what I want, well, those are going to be really brain-burning heavy fight games um, or some mixture thereof, right? But when I look at what am I going to get played and what are the people that I play with, what are they going to enjoy? Mm -hmm. I... I honestly lately have been waiting that a little heavier because at the end of the day, the game that I love that sits on the shelf is still less valuable to me than the game that I still really, really enjoy, but gets off the shelf and plays with those people. And especially if those other people shown a little bit of empathy, I know it's unusual for me, but if I can feed a little bit off of their excitement, if I can play a game I know they're going to love and actually ask me to play, that kind of puts a little bit of weight over my own desires. Yeah, I, I agree. And it's all spectrums, right? You know, like if a game is like so much exactly what I love about games, but I know I'm only ever going to play it once a year, um, then I that is a strong contender for a keeper for me. A great example of this is Eclipse Second Dawn. I know that that is not the jam, jelly, or peanut butter of most of the people that I play games with, but I know that if I want to make it happen, I can make that happen once a year or maybe a couple times a year if I really drove for that to happen, especially as my kid gets older and I have more flexibility. But um, I enjoy playing games. And so the the likelihood of a game getting played by way of it being a more flexible game is probably going to be, um, you know, way heavier to me though. Solitaire gaming has really kind of opened that up. That decision matrix is now all of a sudden all over the place because if I can have a lot of fun playing it just by myself and take the whole other human equation out of it, then that you know, opens it wide up. Right. Exactly. Exactly. I'll I'll throw my specific example as Mage Wars falls on the other side of the fences. I, I really love what Mage Wars does. I love the conflict. I love all the choices and the possibilities. You know, it brings back that love of magic, but it's much more self-contained. You know, you don't have to keep buying it once you have a certain amount. Uh, but the thing is, is, you know, it takes a certain amount of, you have to learn the game. You have to know the game. You have to know those cards. I'm not going to find someone else who's going to dedicate that much time and energy into learning a game that I love unless I maybe lived in a bigger city and found a major force community or something. But even then I'm not going to dedicate enough to be part of a community. I just want one other person who plays it as much as I do or would right. like to. So the reality is, is if I want something head to head in that family of games, I'm going to pick something lighter up, even call out maybe like summoner Wars second edition. Mm -hmm. I would pick that game better 
even though it doesn't meet scratch the itch quite as well as Mage Wars, I know that it's going to get played, and I know other people will ask for it more in my circle of friends. Totally. So it's a sacrifice I'll make to drop down a tier for me if it brings it up a tier for my group. Well, we'll end this with one more question here. Uh, Mike Travis, uh, our buddy, Mike Travis, uh, the lower 48 or Mike Travis asks, what steps do you take uh, proactively to avoid needing to purge as much? And I think these are very different answers uh, for each of us. Personally, um, you know, like because the, the greatest bulk of game intake for me is review copies. I, I don't want to beat around the bush or obfuscate the fact that I get free games as a reviewer. And part of that is being able to say no to projects. Like there are hot games that come out that I think would get views and get the clicks if I had a review of it. But I try to actually review things that I think I would have something interesting to say about and hopefully enjoy, you know, like I, if, if there's not a chance that I, I look at that sheet of paper and go like, I, this just sounds like so not my thing, or it just sounds horrible. I, it doesn't feel good to review that. And also I don't really want to waste my time playing that. I don't love every game that I anticipate loving. And I don't only say yes to games that I know for a fact that I'll love, but I do try to be somewhat selective about the games that I bring into my house, which I, I think is important for anyone, whether they're a reviewer or not, is to actually do a little bit of research and imagine yourself playing this and, you know, apply the same standards that you would have for uh, the games that you want to hit your table, the games that you're going to purge, that kind of stuff to your life when it comes to, you know, just getting new games the acquisition you need to think about is this another potential purge uh in the waiting um ultimately i'm going to get games because i do want to continue this channel i do want it to thrive and um sometimes i'll also take on games that i i i don't have as formed of a uh, well, I guess not opinion. I try to not have an opinion going into a game, but um, an anticipation of my enjoyment of the game. Um, if I think that like this is a smaller publisher and I want to help them out uh, or, you know, like th there's tons of factors that go into me saying yes to a project uh, because I, I'm not like just a list. I'm not PewDiePie here. They're not just sending me all the games. It's not a truck comes up to my house and I get 15 games a week. Uh, I still have to, you know, oftentimes ask for copies or when I get asked, uh, you know, I have to work it into my schedule and think about, do I have the time to dedicate to this? And what about this game versus this other game? So I try to be thoughtful about taking games in, but what about you, John? Like what's, what's your approach for that reduce of the RRR cycle. Well, as, as one of those those plebs who still has to pay for games, I have to think about the economic factors. <laughs> so, totally. You know, there, there's that. <laughs> but uh, but no, the, the thing is, is, is if I set the money aside, okay, the assumption is that we're all being good with our money, you know, and, and I'm, I'm budgeting things. And so any purchase I make is within my budget of X amount of dollars per month, year, week, whatever it is, right? Mm -hmm. So if I'm, if I'm setting aside the money factor, um, I'm thinking about one, is it a, is it a sure hit? Do I know I love it? Have I played it already? And I do have 
through the convention, through the ability to borrow games from our convention library year round, I do have the opportunity and through playing games with you frequently, I'm playing a lot of the newer games. Uh, if I really want to try something, I can. So that's almost always a, I've played it once. I don't buy games blindly anymore. Um, and I would encourage anybody who has a sizable collection to really adopt that as a good consumer practice. You know, go into it knowing you're going to like it before you buy it, because really it's not doing anybody a favor if you end up having to purge it later, including yourself right. and, and the environment, right? Um, but also, um, you know, I, I try to think about what game, I think proactively about what game it would replace if I were to get it. And that was exactly why I called you up, or I texted you rather, I didn't call people. I, I texted you about... Uh, about uh, Between Two Castles and Suburbia? Yeah, castles. yeah, because I don't know about you, but I'm guilty of being excited about every game the first time I play it. Even if it was, it has to be really like C- minus experience for me to not get excited. New yeah, games totally. excite me. So I always, I never impulse buy. I always temper that excitement. I always wait at least a, a good week or two before I even start thinking about do I want to own this? And then I looked at my collection and I asked the serious question, what would it replace? And when I looked at my collection and I saw Suburbia and I'm like, well, you've got that drafting selection element. You're building a sort of a tableau or an environment there with adjacency as a big feature. You know, it's going to have a lot of those same elements. What would castles do that Suburbia doesn't? Is there room for both or do they replace each other? Mm -hmm. Ultimately, I actually may end up getting that one because it's unique in its collaborative aspect that there really might be. And, and that your input was very valuable on that because, uh, but then I have to think, well, okay, if it doesn't replace suburbia, what does it replace? Exactly. And yeah. um, that's, that's a tough question to answer, but if you don't think of it now, you'll be thinking of it later when you're actually having to let go of something kind of by force. Also, I think not haunting Kickstarter. I mean, Kickstarter preys on people having that FOMO, the fear of missing out. The hype cycle, yeah. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, like the Kickstarter creators know exactly what they're doing. And I'm not saying that it's anything sinister, but they want you to feel like you will never have access to that game again. And if you find yourself in that position where you're, you're vulnerable, you are kickstarting everything, then take a step back, like recognize it as like, that's a poor impulse control on your part. Some people are totally fine, uh, but th this is true on anything in life. I have poor impulse control, especially when it comes to certain things, you know, like um, uh, uh, that initial enjoyment of games, acquiring games, uh, food is uh, bad impulse control for me. Um, and Kickstarter can absolutely prey into that for me and has in the past. Uh, but I do try to think about like even recent things, you know, I don't, I don't get all review copies. I have to buy some games. Um, I, I try to think about like the Kickstarters that I've gotten and I backed it with such huge excitement a year and a half ago and the game finally arrives. And even before I open it, that whole hype zone that I was in has just dissipated and I'm kind of ambivalent about the game and it's like oh this is cool um but I've kind of moved on because it, it wasn't necessarily the game that was driving that it was like the the hype train the hype cycle, surrounding yeah, it was exactly that and, and then you're kind of like oh if if you are lucky then the game will actually execute on what you wanted it to do and you'll have that that revitalizing feeling of the game is great and you get to play it and all those things um eclipse second dawn would be a good example of this of a game that like you know even if you waited ages you get it to the table and you're like this is everything that i wanted it to be but there are also games where it's like wow i mean 
the idea of this game was great and being part of that community and being so excited about this was great. But now that it's here, it's kind of just a meh experience. Think about that next time that you're thinking that you need to back five games in a month. Just, you know, keep that in the back of your mind. So that that's my proactive uh, advice for that, uh, Mike. I have one bonus tip for you on the, on the heels of that. It's a short and sweet one. It's that if you're, if you're a nerd, who mm-hmm. has and that's someone who and, and that's really if we're, we're making if, some suppositions about you me and everyone on this chat here if you happen to be a nerd if you happen to be a nerd then i don't know how you stumbled in here this is <laughs> <laughs> um but but a nerd is someone who's passionate about you know an interest right that's that's uh-huh. the idea and so if you're a nerd who has a lot of interests outside of board gaming you know a lot of other media video games books tv movies then licensed ips are a honeypot for you they are a trap I cannot tell you how many times I've heard either my own personal experience or someone else who has bought into a licensed IP thinking this is it. They finally made a game for this awesome thing that I'm super passionate about and I identify with and I've got to get it, especially Kickstarter. They love those. Um, and they just Mega Man. Their, oh my God. Mega Man was a terrible idea. It was a terrible idea for me. Dark Souls was not a good decision. And <laughs> That Dark Souls was probably the last one that I jumped in on where I was just like, I'm really hot for this IP. I'm going to buy this game sight unseen. Nope, should have waited. <laughs> yeah, so yeah. That's my, my one tip is, is if you need to go above and beyond to avoid those Kickstarters or those those pre, pre-order campaigns, even if you're a fan of Dune, maybe wait and see what the release says on or, or what the reviewers are saying about the new Dune game because I know my reviewers pick it up right away. Yeah, I'm going to make Jack get a copy before I buy mine. oh man okay well uh this has been uh great to talk to you john and i appreciate everyone in chat uh the idea for off the table is we're hoping to do this on a weekly basis around the same time on mondays if you have an idea for a focused topic whether it's a particular news item it's an event going on in board games or it's another discussion topic like this uh we would love to hear it if you got questions about anything to do with board games or even not to do with board games. I mean, we could talk to you about archery. We could talk to you about the kayaks that we never built. We could talk to you (laughs) about Uh, collecting hobbies. Yeah, uh, we could talk to you about any number of things, whether we're subject matter experts or not, because we like to talk. We'd love to hear it. Uh, A great place to do that is in the comment sections on our videos, on Twitter, and then we're really trying to focus on Discord recently. There's a lot of great discussion going on there. Uh, But bottom line, thank you for watching the Cardboard Herald. Oh, and we're also going to make audio versions of this go up the next day on the... um, on the podcast channel. So you'll also have that audio mixed in with the interviews and all the other stuff that we're doing uh, that we put up on the podcast. So I appreciate um, everyone for joining in for one of our earlier live streams and uh, looking forward to talking to you next time, John. All right. See you next time.